Good morning. Oh, come on, it's Monday. Good morning. There we go. Thank you. Um, welcome to chapel this morning. Uh, things are going to look a little bit different. Uh, we're not having uh, any of our worship music to start with this morning. We're going to do a little bit at the end. But I have the distinct pleasure of introducing our speaker this morning. And Dr. Stacy Ingram is one of our newest faculty members on campus. She has an incredible career behind her. Uh, she taught at Bethel University and ran their cross-country and track programs. Uh, in the last 18 years, she spent at the University of Minnesota uh, in their kinesiology and exercise science programs and running their uh, sport and performance labs uh, at the U, so worked with all sorts of different teams. Uh, Dr. Ingram and her husband of 23 years live in Shoreview, Minnesota, so she makes quite the commute every morning, um, and they have two children, but we are very, very blessed to have Dr. Ingram on our campus and part of our math and science department, so please give a warm crown welcome to Dr. Stacy Ingram. So, um, it's always an adventure with me, and some of you have already had me in class and you kind of know the drill. So, the reason they didn't sing to start with is because I was a little um, selfish at time, and I said I really need as much time as possible, so uh, hopefully we'll have time at the end. Um, this weekend, we were at a football game, a high school football game on Friday night, and uh, my husband was sitting next to me texting both of our kids, my daughter who was in the stands and my son who's in California. And it went something like this. It involves your mom, three Ramsey, three Ramsey Sheriff's Department uh, officers, two administrators from the Mountain View School District, and two ticket takers. It also involves a hot dog and french fries for bribery. And he left it at that. And that's what I'm going to leave it with you today, is that in our family, something's always going on, and there's always a story to be told. And so what I hope to share with you today is what I just term is really a lesson in resiliency. Um, so we go in here. Did I just do that? <laughs> Who's working this, me or you? Am I? All right, it's just a little slow. So the, the way, you know, I'm, I'm going to frame this as seasons of life. And, you know, I love nature and I love photography. And I'm spending more and more time uh, kind of in this arena. But really the seasons of life gives us a little glimpse of how God's going to run our life. So if a thousand years is a day to God then why are we always questioning his timing? So when I think through the seasons, I just think of, you know, we get to winter, and winter really is that time of restoration. So there's no reason for growth if there isn't some death. And so when we look at things, you, you know, you just want to think about what's going on, what season in life am I am right now, and it is temporary. So I'm going to talk a little bit about adversity. Um, it, it, what's really fun for me is that I've been in the athletic arena for a very long time. I run a program called the Training Edge. And 
the kids know it all the time. These are generally elite-level athletes I train, and, and they know that I'll say, you're going to feel like you're going to die, but I've never killed anybody yet. Um, and I have a, life, or a, a, a liability insurance policy just for that very reason, in case there is that day I actually kill a kid. <laughs> so, so I'm covered. Um, so my training program is to get them to do things they cannot do on their own. And that's what's really cool. It's just, it's a part of who I am. So if you just look at adversity, it's relative to life's previous experiences, and I'll share kind of a fun example of that towards the end. Um, overcoming adversity is the greatest opportunity to build character, and, and I truly believe this, is some of us have a lot of character because we've gone through a lot of stuff. But if you look at every time you're faced against something as it's not fair, you're never going to reap the uh, benefits of, of going through adversity. Um, two of the most influential characteristics of overcoming adversity, this was actually research out of the University of Virginia's nursing department, was a person's sense of humor and an established faith. Now that's coming out of the University of Virginia. Two of the most influential characteristics of not overcoming adversity is unresolved anger, which can be at certain, you know, can kind of create that undertow of stress. And then uh, blame, for which many ind individuals, this is the default setting. No, it's not my fault, okay? Um, you know, it's always somebody's fault. Adversity is often non-discriminant. Overcome adversity is a personal choice. So, you know, when I th you know you're all familiar at this point with the Jacob Wetterling story. And, uh, you know, his buddy is out with him on a bike ride, and one gets kidnapped and one doesn't. And they did an article recently um, on Aaron Larson, his best friend. And, and Aaron just basically said in the article, I mean, he's moved on. There will never be closure, as it was stated in the article. But more importantly, he will never forget that night. And it's the night of why Jacob and why not him. And so there's this book that came out on love. And I thought this was really interesting, because this is going to segue into a, a story about a family. And in the book, it actually says in the last paragraph, love forsakes us from time to time, and we forsake love. In depression, the meaninglessness of every enterprise and every emotion, the meaninglessness of life itself becomes self-evident. The only feeling left in this loveless state is insignificance. And that's the worst place anybody could ever be. There was a lady that died in Ohio, and they didn't discover her body for six years. And the only reason they realized she was dead was because she was no longer making the car pavements. And, you know, that's really being insignificant. So the last thing you want to be is insignificant. So this takes us to a, uh, a story here. Um, so I, I love military stuff. I actually teach a lot of stuff kind of in that arena. And, and this is a family back in the day. And, and you're going to probably realize way too late about the greatest generation. Um, because they are dying off. And, and that generation has something that we probably won't see in the United States ever again. And so when you looked at a family like this, this was the norm back in the late 50s, early 60s. And so in 1968, so you fast forward that same family, and they've grown. And this is what you have as a World War II family. You've got two older kids, and then you've got the four post-war kids. Not uncommon in those days. But you can imagine this had to have been one of the happiest days in the family's life. The son 
had just graduated from uh, college and now, uh, you know, marrying his, his uh, fiance and, you know, great, great event. But this is in July of 1968. And then fast forward to December of that same year and the mom of that family was brutally murdered. And so you think of these highs and lows in life, and there's nothing in, in July of 1968 she, that she would have any idea that her life was in a very short time going to be over. It happened to be one of the most horrific murders at this time in this area of the country. And um, the fact that it was horrific was there were four kids in the house at the time of this murder, and not one of them were harmed. And so you take a typical case, and you know, I'm going to keep talking about what's fair and what's not. You have the FBI involved, and the FBI is there to basically gather fingerprints, blood, stains, hair, any evidence possible. And they gather all that. And so now you're on to something with this case. And then you have one of the kids. So one of those four kids in the house actually saw the murder. And that was interesting because as it's described in the newspaper articles about this, is that when the girl's dad and a police officer walked into her bedroom, the first thing she did was get up and say, has that man left yet? Now, the young girl was nine. And so if you think about, you know, how bad was life for you at nine, you're trying to process all of this. And so the fact is that the girl had witnessed the murder, but also stayed in her room as advised by her older sister. And, you know, you think about seeing your mom beaten to death, and then now you're talking to authorities. Well, the interesting thing about all this is go back to the flaw in love. The attorney, or the FBI and detectives, um, basically took this young girl, and they didn't have the story they really wanted for this murder. They didn't have enough evidence. And so what they did was they, is about four months after the, the murder and the four younger kids were um, living now with an aunt and uncle out of state. And what they did is they took this young girl into a hotel run, room, the detectives, and questioned her for six plus hours. And then they got to the point of, do you love your dad? Okay, so you think of the role of love in anybody's life. And the girl's like, well, yeah, I mean, of course I love my dad. Well, do you know he's going to marry another woman? Now, you know, you think about it. She knows her mom has died, so I don't know how out of the ordinary or what that had to do with anything. She said no. And again, they asked, the detectives asked again, do you love your dad? And she said yes. He said, well, do you know he's a sick man? And the girl, you know, I think about, what would a nine-year-old think that meant? Is your, your dad's a sick man? And she said she didn't know that. And they said, well, do you want to get help for him? She said, yes. And then one more time, do you love your dad? And she said, yeah. They said, we can get help for your dad if you just tell us that he killed your mom. And, and so you think about this. Well, now you're going to add to the, the layers of the story. The FBI somehow lost all the fingerprints and all the bloodstains. And now you've got a corroborated testimony. Um, so obviously they arrest her dad, and uh, she really didn't understand the ramifications of what she had said. And her dad does admit he had been having an affair, okay? But that's a pretty big price to pay for an affair. Keep pressing this way. Um, so his only alibi, his mistress, 
attempt suicide the night she's to testify. So if you look at this case, you've got a story that's changed, you've got evidence that's missing, you've got an alibi that's in the hospital clinging on to life. So they brought in the psychiatrist, they actually brought in the psychiatrist from the Son of Sam and Boston Stranglers to question the kid as to why her story changed. Because obviously that was a big piece of this story. How do you take a kid who says, has that man left yet with her dad in the room to the same kid saying her dad killed her mom? So they brought in these psychiatrists, but they were actually denied access to the girl. And, um, and so there was no questioning at a high level there. Case is, um, you know, everybody puts their cards on the table, and then they decide they're going to put the death penalty on the table. So you've got this murder case, and again, I'm, you know, I'm sharing this story with you because there's a lot of similarities here, but the reality is when we see things like this, we're just going, this can't happen in our lifetime, and yet it continues to happen over and over again. So they put the death penalty on, and they did find him uh, guilty of second-degree murder. The sentence, the um, charge does not fit the crime. It was a brutal murder, should have been first degree. So that should tell you something was very wrong. Well, here's the interesting part of this, is I was the little nine-year-old. I witnessed the brutal murder of my mom. And the next morning after my mom had died, they had all of us kids in a room with my dad and other relatives and stuff. And my dad said at that time, your God is taking your mom home to be with him. And I didn't think that was a great move for God. Um, for me, it was I need my mom far more than God could use him. And I certainly didn't understand it. But what I did know is my world was pretty much shattered at that point. My dad was sentenced to 20 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. I sat, sat on that stand in the courtroom and told lies. And the judge would recess every time he could see I was starting to break. He would not allow access to me by anybody. I was basically holed up in a hotel room with a, you know, legal people so that nobody would get my story to change. And we never talked about my mom's death, ever. It was just something that wasn't talked about. And you, you live with that, but in the same token, um, my dad just basically came to the realization he was convicted of adultery and is paying the price for that and not murder. So in 1976, I was a junior in high school. I had lived with my aunt and uncle and my youngest brothers and sisters at this point. And it was just a different lifestyle. You know, when you're not raised at this point by your biological parents, everything changes. And, you know, when, when we think about my junior year in high school, what happened, my dad was paroled. He was paroled because he was on good behavior, and everybody believed he was not guilty. And the first thing he did was hire a detective to come out and tell, talk to me. And my junior year in high school, I mean, I'll never forget, it was the first time I told the truth since the very night my mom had been murdered. And it was an unbelievable relief for me. So, you know, what do you do with that? Well, states don't like to admit they're wrong, and I didn't really know what I could do. So started pursuing what can we do, and I worked with my dad as much as I could. He never was bitter towards me. My dad and I, after we finally, you know, he was sentenced to prison, I never saw him until he was out, and he lost everything. 
He fought a war, he drove a tank to free people, and yet our very justice system turned its back on him. So how do you deal with uh, life when you know something you've done, put your dad in prison? Well, that's tough. It's really tough. But what I know is there are a praying group of people for myself and my, my sisters that really put this armor over us, even though I wasn't really raised in a Christian environment. And, you know, as you go through life, you need to pay attention to what are the pieces that are going to help you get through life. Well, one night I was actually watching 60 Minutes, so this was in, uh, I don't know, about six years ago, 60 Minutes, and there was a story about a young boy who had been coerced by police to say that his dad had killed his sister. And I just, it was just like a rerun. And so when I was thinking there, you know, what do I do with this information? And I sat on it, and then I decided, you know, they have DNA now, <laughs> testing. And so I contacted the attorney who supposedly was the best DNA attorney in the United States, and she jumped on the case and put one of her um, de private detectives on it. And at the end, this was his final email to me. I've been involved in such in several high-profile cases involving the police running Rashad over the evidence in search of a conviction rather than a search for truth. Here's the situation here. It seems to me that although the circumstances beyond your control may never um, allow you to prove scientifically that your father was innocent, it's still obvious. In fact, according to Mr. Long several years ago, the Petersburg police virtually admitted to him that they had a wrongful conviction in the case. I think that the fact that they assigned a police detective to work with him speaks volumes. Mr. Long also thought that the two officers who interrogated you um, were reprimanded at the point of early retirement. At this time, we are closing our file in this case. I regret we were unable to find physical evidence or even a way to uh, gather physical evidence to bring this case to a proper conclusion. I hope you find some comfort in knowing that you did all you could to get the truth, but through no fault of anyone's, it just appears to be out of our grasp. Our world is almost always looking for this very Disney world ending, and it's called closure. And I don't think closure is anything we should ever be looking for because I don't think we, we can get it. When the Simpson kids had their mom killed, I mean, you, you read this, and, and basically this is kind of like my life, was it um, horrific double loss to have your father charged with the death of your mother shatters their child's word. Faith in the world, and, and my faith was rattled because it's not that I didn't believe, I didn't know what to believe, and I didn't know who to believe because I knew detectives were liars, I knew adults allowed things to happen that shouldn't have happened, and I didn't have a very strong faith in anything. So what did I do? I mean, this is where I am so grateful God had a, a shield of protection around me all my years of my life, and that's because people were praying. And I really encourage you, when you say you're going to pray for somebody, pray for them. And not just today, but for a lifetime. I invested my time in music, had some success there. I uh, was a Division I uh, distance runner. Ran for the University of Northern Iowa. It was part of a relay team that broke a world record, which was pretty cool. Um, it was one of those 24-hour relays. And what I did was I ran a total of 24 miles at a 618 average, um, you know, which is tough.
the coolest part about this is I'm just going to back you up a second here. My freshman year in college, I felt like I was coming of my own. I had run in a track meet, and I had won the 10,000 meters as a freshman at a big meet in the state of Iowa. And all my teammates were just going crazy, like, wow, that's so cool, you know. And I'm just like, what difference does it make? I, it was really one of those moments where you're riding in a bus and saying there's more to life than winning, there's more to life than awards, and there's more to life than just doing well. And so we got back, and I called the athletic trainer who did not travel with us, and she lived in the same dorm. It was probably about 11.30 at night. And she's assuming I'm hurt. And she comes down, but she also had an inkling. So she came down, and we talked about a lot of things, and she, eventually she just said, why did you want to talk to me? And I said, what is it that you have that I don't have? She had lived such a steady life in her faith, and I saw it. God had allowed such a big hole in my heart to make me keep seeking things, and winning wasn't it. Being a good musician wasn't it. And that night she shared with me how Christ could forgive me for lying in the court of law, putting my dad in prison. And I didn't know that God. And it was probably one of those consuming nights where you just go, this absolutely alters my trajectory. And I am so thankful for just an average person who just lived her life in an average way but it showed me Christ in a way that wasn't matched by anybody. So we, I prayed that night to receive Christ, and it had all these domino effects. We had one of the strongest Christian college teams, I think, in the U.S. So many of the people in our team became Christians, and this relay was kind of a reflection of that. Well, after we ran this relay, our goal was to do it again the following year, but to do it in a way that nobody could touch it and we wouldn't think about doing it again. And so that meant a whole lot more pain. And so, you know, I'm getting everything arranged. We are going to dedicate a brand new track by doing this, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm getting my team formulated. And I realize, you know, we actually need to have an alternate in case somebody gets sick the night before. Because once you drop out, you're out. So Stacy Miller was her name. And um, oh, that's just nonsense stuff. Um, Stacy Miller was her name. And she's the one on my, uh, my left up there. And she said to me, I'll do this relay as long, I'll let you, I'll be the alternate as long as I don't have to do it. <laughs> and uh, so we're like, all right, game on. So on a Saturday, I had just qualified for the Mid-American National Championships um, in both the five and the 10,000 meters. My music scholarship was running out, so athletics picked it up. So it was kind of a cool day, deal. So on a Wednesday, I signed uh, a track scholarship, went out on a run, and a car backed up without looking and ended my career. I am so thankful I accepted Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior my freshman year. This would have been my final fifth year of eligibility, and I was projected to be an All-American. And I remember laying on the pavement, hearing the sirens coming, and just thinking of Isaiah um, 4031. I just knew that I was going to wait for the Lord, and he was going to take care of this. I knew it was a bad injury. And so I'm in the hospital, and Stacy Miller walks in and says, you've got to be kidding me. So 
so she ran on that relay. Because I was a scholarship athlete, I was supposed to be traveling with the team. And so that fall, there was a meet that we were going to run at Drake, and it was going to be an awful day, and I really needed to stay home and study. So I called a coach the night before and said, would you be okay if I just didn't travel to this meet since I, you know, I couldn't run? She said, yeah, that's fine. Stacy Miller had been on that team that shattered the world record to make it untouchable. It was one of those milestones in her life I'll never forget, because I was there, how it changed her and how tight we were as, as Christ followers. And that link alone just made this something special. Well, that day, the team went to the Drake, uh, to Drake for a meet. Um, I get a call at uh, about 6.45 in the morning. And the call, call was, your team has been in a horrific accident. And Stacy Miller was killed. I never once questioned my knee injury after that, ever. You know, I mean, I watched my friends become All-Americans, and I sat there on the sidelines. And that's hard. That's hard for anybody. But the reality was, when I got that phone call, I didn't question my knee injury ever again. On the bright side, it was an amazing funeral, and just how Christ had permeated through our team and, and the witness through a state university was simply amazing. And so when you think about being set up, you know, I, I remember hearing that ambulance come and thinking, you know, God's in control. He's got this. And so you think about it. Faith, my faith was in place, and growth was remarkable. It's not easy, but it was remarkable. Uh, injury prevented me from being in a tragic accident. The surgeon that was on call when I came into the hospital after being hit by a car was not the university's orthopedic surgeon, and they wanted me moved to a different hospital. Since I had a concussion, they weren't really going to move me, and I love this guy. So anyway, David Poe was my orthopedic surgeon, and he is one of the most remarkable people I've ever met in my life as a servant. And so I start putting all these pieces together. You know, every we, time we have something to happen, we think it's supposed to fit perfectly. It doesn't. And sometimes we never get the answer. But what was cool about this family was I basically came, became a part of their family. All four of their sons were in our wedding. If I'm not hit by a car and he's not on call, I never meet this family. And you look at all the things that happen in our lives, and it's just really amazing how many things actually end up uh, being... That's not supposed to be up there either. So I, I, I ran for uh, one of Nike's teams. My career came back after college and, and had a pretty neat experience. But what's important about this picture is the middle picture. Um, I'm in the middle, and, and then Chris Wallace is on one side. I actually shared Christ with her on a 60-minute run. Mike Fraley on the other side was my boss. I worked at a running store. I shared Christ with him. He became a Christ follower. His wife became a Christ follower. So I look at all the things I've had, and you know what? Having my belief in Jesus Christ and understanding that's the most important thing, that's the most important thing I can give back, but you can't give it back unless you have relationships. So you know, I look at these pictures and you know, great times and everything. Sorry about this. So... One of the things I did do was, after I graduated from college, I started a youth ministry for athletes. And it was so much fun. You know, I had 100-plus kids out of this big school district, and, 
And one of the young men that were in the high school study, he and I prayed for him to receive Christ over breakfast, um, which was something I did frequently, took kids out to eat. And, you know, just an amazing man of God. Well, he was going to come up and run Twin Cities Marathon. I just talked to him earlier that morning. Um, he had put four brand-new tires on his car and went out to test them, Managed left his sons at home while well, he tested them. While well, he was out driving in the middle of the afternoon, two 20-year-olds were drunk and high and T-boned them and killed Grant instantly. And again, when you look at the effect of events, what happened as a result of Grant's death was really pretty remarkable. I mean, he just was an incredible guy. He had a run for him. I spoke at his funeral, 1,500 people there. But this letter, which you can't read, um, I'm going to get to the kind of the end here of it. Um, he talks about Grant. He never met Grant. But he said, I owe everything to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Grant was an instrument um, instrumental part in my finding Jesus and ultimately my eternal life. I am forever grateful to Grant. Grant would have died ten times over for this one kid to find Christ. You know, what people don't understand is our life is just a blink. And to be able to share life and see, and, and see Christ affect so many people is just incredible. And this actually went to uh, Grant's wife, this, um, this letter. And it just really shows how if we let God do what he can and we take our role and, and utilize that in our world today, it's changing one life at a time. So, you know, if I look at my life, my mom is brutally murdered. I'm the only eyewitness. There's a side of me that says I got chicken and went back to my bed because that's what my sister asked me to do. And maybe I could have changed the outcome. I also know that I could have been killed and my three sisters could have been killed. But I can't change any of that. I can't change my mom's death. I don't know what the purpose of my mom's death was. Okay? But what I do know is that God puts things in our path. And either we get to figure it out that that's part of his great plan for us, or we miss it. And so when I talk about closure, it's not about closure. Um... Troy DeJody, another young man in, in our study, our high school Bible study. This little girl and his son were killed tragically in a car accident. And I have been able to help Troy get through this because of our relationship together in Christ. It doesn't mean we're going to go through life untouched. But what it does mean is our resiliency is our choice of how we're going to deal with it. And what's really cool about having a foundation in Jesus Christ is that the world doesn't get it. They don't understand how you get up every day and the hope that you have every day. I look at every day as an incredible gift. So, my husband and I met skiing in Colorado. Um, pretty cool way to meet your husband. And, um, you know, one of the things we love is being above the clouds. But that's really life, is that if we allow ourselves to only see the clouds above us and they're always gray, we can't see the beauty in it. And so when I, when I think about Colorado, there's a lot of things that go for us. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. 
Have you ever thought that your adversity is supposed to be able to lead somebody else to Christ? Instead, we get so self-centered and think, it's all about me. It probably was never about you. Then God said, let the waters team with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and the open expanses of the heavens. We cannot limit God. We just can't. Okay, we can't limit him. One of my uh, favorites, I lift my eyes up to mountains from whence my strength cometh. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. When I was a young runner, I would always look at hills and put Jesus Christ at the top. And it drove me for every run that, you know, to push myself harder. Seasons of life, closure isn't always possible. I can't prove in the court of law that my dad didn't kill my mom. There's no evidence. Okay? The DNA didn't exist in those days. My dad has since died. Okay? I can't give him back the life that was taken from him. But I was able to share Christ with him. Resolve um, involves resolution of understanding that we may never know the whys. I mean, we're kind of control freaks. Like, I need to know why. Like, maybe you don't. Whoops, didn't mean to do that. Um, resolve involves an understanding that all of life's events present an opportunity for growth. And you have to buy into that from every moment of your day. Life's events shape us. They don't determine who we become. So I'm going to look at just a little bit other side of this, I hope. Um, what happens when there's no resolve? A life of anger, bitterness, blame. Look for resolve in assessing blame. Relationship issues, depression, future generations of anger and lack of ownership of outcomes, lack of personal responsibility for outcomes. One of my sisters has used my mom's death for every bad behavior she's ever had in life. She ended up with Manchalism by proxy, which is basically making your kids sick because she wanted the attention. She compiled unnecessary medical bills for her daughter, created unnecessary trauma for her daughter. She's divorced. That's an outcome when you can't move on from no matter what life deals you. Disassociate with all our family members. She won't associate with any of us anymore. Create, has created isolation. And I can't go to the link on here, but the link is my sister was arrested two years ago for embezzlement. And the saddest thing is she told one of her daughters, the closest friends she's ever had were the ones that she met in prison. That's life without Christ. That's a choice. And that's a choice of being angry for the things that you were dealt or given. The other side of it. On, the far, on this picture right here in the white is my sister. And this was posted about two weeks ago. And her daughter is so proud they're out drinking shots together. My sister is 60 years old. She's married to a drunk. And she's never done anything to take a voice, to take a stand, to do the right things. So she's become like them. And I say that just hurting for her. She could have had so much happiness and joy in life, but instead she chose not to fight. Can I just encourage you that whatever you're going through, it's worth fighting for. Okay? Your morality will tell you what the right thing is to do, but the longer you stay in immorality, that becomes your reality. And it's really hard to move out of that.
in the middle is my daughter and myself and a good friend of ours. And, and my daughter just loves Jesus Christ. And it's just, that's the only thing I cared about when raising our kids. It's the only thing I really wanted to make sure they were taken care of. On the far picture is the daughter of my mom's best friend that I saw for the first time this summer since my mom was killed. And she talks about how much her mom struggled. Why? Because nobody knew the story. And so when you don't know, you're kind of fighting through things. This is really... <laughs> so, effects of resolve. You, what you end up with is hope, peace, joy, forgiveness, purpose in life. I'm living life intentionally. Okay? Everybody's like, why are you here at Crown and not the University of Minnesota? Are you kidding me? God has so blessed me by giving me the accolades to come here and build something great. And again, all I care about is changing lives. Purpose in life, investment in relationships, and meaningful uh, relationships. Difference between closure and resolve. Everyone's looking for closure. It's supposed to create an attitude that it's over. Okay? Gives meaning to the why question. Results in harmony. Uh, fairy tale endings, etc., etc. They're going to start pushing me here, but this is mine. So when I look at what I have... You don't get some of the coolest things in life if you hold on to the very things that can't be closed. To have an incredible husband. Come on. Why are we going this way? Uh, this, is, this is not on me, I don't think. Great kids. You know, I don't get two amazing kids if I live the life that my youngest sister has chosen. Investment. My son is the only one violin player that you'll ever see in a Heisman pose. But I just have something I want you to listen to. It's not going to be very long, but, but this is kind of where I'm going to finish here, is that my son is an amazing composer, just amazing. And it is such a privilege to live in a house with him where he can just compose. And so he wrote this piece. This was uh, when he, something he wrote, and you're going to hear the recital part of it, um, when he was a junior in high school. And he didn't know that, what to name it. Well, I'm working with some people in Uganda, and I, my passion is to go build schools there. And so Stone is one of the main pillars of this organization that we work with. And Stone was at our house with the other team from Uganda, and um, Peter just got really tight with Stone, and, really liked, and Stone really loved Peter's piece. So when asked to name it, which is always my son's hardest issue with music, is what are you going to call it, um, he decided to name it Stone. What's really important about this is Peter dedicated to something, to a village in Uganda. My son is giving back. He would never hear the music if I had brought in all the adversity that came with my life if it didn't have resolve. And, and I just can't, you know, when I hear my, it really was kind of this awakening moment that God has taken our family and taken all the events and lined them up and say, they were all for a reason. And so I just want you to listen just a little bit here. We're almost done here.
He's got his own SoundCloud page. He's got an agent in uh, New York. Um, I was at a, I'm waiting for them to cue this up, right? Um, we were at a soccer game on Saturday, and he's calling me, and I'm diagnosing him on FaceTime with a scapula injury. Like, you know, we're going through the motions. Like, who does this? You know, so. I'm going to keep coming, going while they're uh, looking for the sound bite. But anyway, my kids mean everything. I left college coaching because I wanted to be around my kids. a glimpse of in my son's mind if there's tension in our house he never hears the music and that's kind of where my I'm actually writing a book it's called The Greatest Gift of All um, we're like struggling with all these pictures here so you take all the pieces a person may be a piece you may be a piece an activity may be a piece if you believe God has all the pieces, then don't fret about the missing one. So I'm writing this book, and it, 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 the name of the book is called The Greatest Gift of All is Resolve. And I got that from my son just because when I hear him, I hear peace and joy, and God has so gifted this kid. And think about what we deny ourselves when we choose not to get over things, when we choose to be victims. We have an opportunity to really resolve everything that we're given in life, but Christ has to be first. It's not going to happen otherwise. Thanks. Let's, let's remain standing. It's okay. Let's remain standing. <laughs> Dr. Ingram, thank you for your vulnerability, sharing your story, and then sharing your life here at Crown. We're grateful for it. We look forward to getting to know you better. Will you pray with me? Father, it is true that you can make beautiful things out of ashes. 
that all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes. Thank you for planting Dr. Ingram here at Crown so that we can hear the story and be encouraged to walk faithfully with you and to discover our own resiliency in the midst of our own trials and to be people of courage and hope and joy in our world so that we can be instruments used by you to help others discover the hope found in only in Christ. So help us to walk faithfully in this. May your blessing pour out upon Dr. Ingram and all of us now. In your glorious name, and amen. God bless you.